checks in the last um, 15 years. <laughs> the entrance on the east side that has been closed for several weeks, we think will be open by next Sunday. Uh, one of the reasons we dug it up and repaved it is it was higher on the outside than the building is in the inside. And when it rained, uh, we had a little swimming pool back over by that door. And so we've dug it out and we've redone the drainage so that it will drain out. And then we've also added more steps for people to come down. There's going to be some benches outside and some trees and kind of make it a nice uh, little courtyard as you enter in. Uh, also, as some of you may know from Thursday night, our coffee shop is now open. Uh, a couple of things we want to do in there. We want to put copies of books and Christian magazines that belong to the coffee shop so that uh, if you come in and you want to just take the time to be uh, to read something, to study something. There'll be books that you can uh, pick up and read. If you spill a stain of coffee on it, it won't matter. You can put it back on the shelf, read it again next time, at a place where you can be ministered to. We want the uh, people who work in there to walk up and not only ask you, uh, would you like a cup of coffee or what can I do for you, but what can I pray for about something in your life? And a, a real place of ministry. It's going to be open from 7 in the morning uh, till midday sometime, and then again in the evenings till about 11 o'clock. So if you're in the area during those times, we invite you to come. All right, let's open up our Bibles. I trust that you brought a Bible. How many brought a Bible this morning? Raise your hand. Good thinking. <laughs> Ruth chapter 2 this morning. Second chapter of Ruth. Lord, with these open books, we open our hearts and we ask that you would speak through the words of Scripture to issues that are in our lives. Each one of us, Lord, need your instruction. And just now, as the song we sang just said, we surrender all. During this time, we pray that you would now infuse us with your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Today we come to a very romantic scene, the meeting of a man and a woman who eventually become husband and wife. Yesterday I had the opportunity of performing a rededication of marriage vows for some dear friends in the church here. It was their 25th wedding anniversary, and they just, you know, decked it out. And uh, she dressed in a wedding dress again, and he had his tuxedo on, and they had the original cast of characters from their wedding 25 years ago, plus their children were there. And... Um, it was a romantic scene. I guess the highlight of the whole event is when, after the rededication of vows, he grabbed the microphone and looked into his wife's eyes after 25 years, and he said, I loved you 25 years ago. I love you today. And I will love you forever and forever and ever. It was a real touching scene. It was romantic. Do you remember the first time you met your husband or wife? Try to. <laughs> Think back to that time just now. I remember very distinctly the first time I met Lenya. I remember what things attracted me to her and things about her that I saw. I remember how the relationship developed and then I remember how I flaked out in the relationship. I was so afraid of that huge C word, commitment, knowing that it could lead to the M word. Marriage, which it did. In chapter 2, 
God is clearly in control of these events. He takes two lives and weaves them together and they will fit into the genealogy of Jesus Christ. There's a lot here to do with God's providence. But that's something we want to look at next time. Today, let's comb through this chapter and view it from our side, from the human side, the side of a husband and a wife, or at this stage in their relationship, simply a a man and a woman. What attracted them to each other? By the way, how many married people do we have here today? Raise your hand up. Be honest. Raise your hand up. Okay, good. How many single people do we have here today? Raise your hand up. Keep them up. Okay, look around. Find out who's not taken yet. This is your chance. What was it that attracted Ruth to Boaz? What character traits did they see in each other exhibited? What are the important characteristics? How did they meet? Was it all this mystical kind of a thing? Were they automatons? Did they say, God laid it on my heart to love you? No, I think it was a very romantic, touching human scene where they saw certain characteristics in each other and they were endeared to each other because of it. So you might want to ask yourself, if you are single today, what are the important traits to look for in a mate? And if you are already married, what are the important traits that I need to cultivate in my life for my relationship now? Somebody once said that some people are unmarried for the same reason that some drivers run out of gas. They pass too many filling stations looking for their favorite brand. There's some truth to that. I'm all for looking for the right ingredients. But beware lest your ingredients, number one, are unattainable. But number two, that they're God's ingredients that they're spiritual ingredients in a relationship. There are many contrasts between Ruth and Boaz, and you know how it's often said that opposites attract. If that's the case, this couple is attracted to one another because they're very opposite of each other. On one hand, uh, Boaz is very wealthy. On the other hand, Ruth is very poor. On one hand, uh, Boaz is Jewish, part of the chosen race, And on the other hand, Ruth is a Moabitess, a member of a cursed race in Judaism. One owns the field, the other is gleaning in the field. And yet, there is a romance between them that is beautiful to watch as it develops in chapters 2 and in chapter 3 until they finally are married and develop their life in chapter 4. Romance. You may have heard of William Jennings Bryan, great orator in American history and a defender of the Christian faith. He was having his picture painted, a portrait done of himself by a painter at one time, and as he sat down to get himself drawn on canvas, the painter noticed that Bryan's hair was over his ears and didn't know how he should paint it. In fact, he said, Why is it that you've let your hair grow so long over your ears. William Jennings Bryan said, there's romance to that story. You see, when I first dated my wife, the only thing she didn't like is that my ears stuck out. So to please her, I decided to grow my hair over my ears. And the artist said, well, uh, that was so many years ago. Why don't you cut your hair now? And he winked and said, because the romance is still going on.
seems to be a romance in this relationship between Ruth and Boaz that goes on and on and on. So we want to look at it since there are three figures in our story. We're going to look at Ruth and Boaz and then once again Naomi. And so let's look at Ruth and I've called her a woman of virtue. Let's read the text. There was a relative, verse 1, of Naomi's husband, a man of great wealth, of the family of Elimelech. His name was Boaz. So Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, Please let me go to the field and glean heads of grain after him, in whose sight I may find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. Then she left and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. Now, behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. They answered him, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his servant who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? So the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered and said, It is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. And she said, Please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. So she came and has continued from morning until now though she rested a little while in the house. Now here comes the meeting, the first time they meet, verse 8. Boaz said to Ruth, You will listen, my daughter, will you not? Do not go glean in another field, nor go from here, but stay close by my young women. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap, and go after them. Have I not commanded the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink from what the young men have drawn. So she fell on her face, bowed to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? And Boaz answered and said to her, It has been fully reported to me all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband and how you have left your father and your mother in the land of your birth and have come to a people whom you did not know before. The Lord repay your work, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings you have come for refuge. Then she said, Let me find favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me and have spoken kindly to your maidservant, though I am not like one of your maidservants. Looking at Ruth's life and her characteristics, I would call her a woman of virtue. And let's look at those virtues. Number one, she was diligent in work. We notice, if we look from chapter 1 on into chapter 2 in the second verse, she's in Bethlehem and she goes out to the field to glean to work. Now, when Naomi and Ruth came to town, they were the buzz in the conversation. Everybody was talking about them. Isn't that Naomi? She's the one that left 10 years ago with her husband. And who's this girl with her? And where's her husband? And she had to tell the story. My husband is dead. This is my daughter-in-law, a foreign woman. Her husband is dead. And after they settle into their cottage, they face a major problem. They are poor. They are in poverty. And here's Naomi, the wife of a wealthy landowner who once had it all in Bethlehem. She returns empty, she said. She said, I went out full, but I have returned empty. Now she is in poverty. She doesn't have what she used to have. And what we see here is that Ruth 
takes it upon herself to go out and work in the fields. Her mother-in-law doesn't prompt her. Mother-in-law doesn't say, Look, you've been here two weeks. Would you get off your duff and get a job? She takes her own initiative and she goes to her mother-in-law and says, I'm going to go out and work in the fields. And she goes for it. And she works. She has no husband. Naomi, her mother-in-law, has no husband. And so she goes for it. She gets involved. She's diligent in work. There were laws in Israel. Let me briefly explain them. It's the law of gleaning. If you were poor, you would glean. And this is how it would work. At harvest time, the men would go through the field. They would cut the standing grain. They would drop it on the ground. Women would come afterwards and bind the stalks into sheaves, carry it to the threshing floor for the grain. After all that was done, the gleaners came, the poor of the land who owned nothing. And uh, if you owned the field, you could only go through it one time. You'd have to leave the rest for the poor. In fact, they would leave up to 25 to 30% of the crops still in the field for the poor. It was a law of God in Israel. Let me read the law to you. In Leviticus 23, God said, When you harvest your crops on your land, do not harvest all the way to the corners of your field. If grain falls onto the ground, don't gather it up. Leave it for the poor people and the foreigners of the country, for I am the Lord your God. Now that was God's welfare program. God's welfare program is take care of the poor. How do you do it? Well, you give them the dignity of working for it. He didn't say, have them stand in a line and beg. He didn't say, let them sit at home and collect a check. He said, no, you care for the poor and you make sure they have enough food. You leave the food, but let them go get it. And Ruth knew the law. She didn't protest that. So she's out there in the field working. Now let's look at verse 6 and 7. Here's the testimony of the supervisor for Boaz in the field where Ruth is working. The servant who was in charge of the reapers answered and said, It is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. And she said, Please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. Now, this is what he notices about her. So she came and has continued from morning until now, though she rested a little in the house. He noticed that she was a hard worker from morning until evening. It made an impression on him, and I'm sure it's making an impression on Boaz as he's asking this question. Okay, keep a marker there and turn right. Go down a few streets to the book of Proverbs. Look at Proverbs chapter 31 for just a moment. The, uh, the writing of a virtuous or an excellent woman. The question is asked in Proverbs 31, verse 10, Who can find a virtuous wife? For her worth is far above rubies. The heart of her husband safely trusts her. So he will have no lack of gain. She does him good, not evil, all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and willingly works with her hands. She is like the merchant ships. She brings her food from afar She also rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household, a portion for her maidservants. She considers a field and buys it. From her profits, she plants a vineyard. She girds herself with strength and strengthens her arms. She perceives that her merchandise is good. Her lamp does not go out by night. She stretches out her hand to the distaff and her hand holds the spindle. That is, she's sewing, working. She extends her hand to the poor. 
She reaches out her hands to the needy. She is not afraid of snow for her household, for all of her household is clothed with scarlet. She makes tapestry for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates where he sits among the elders of the land. Now, you've got to look at this and understand that this is a description of not a 24-hour period, but a lifetime. I mean, you, you, you read this and you go, oh my goodness, I'm exhausted just reading what this woman is doing. How could I ever fulfill these requirements? You can't. No one can. It is a lifetime, not an hour, a day, or a week. It seems to describe the hard-working, diligent wife who's devoted to her children and her husband who works hard for the home. That's what it's all about. Um, a man named William Kritza paraphrased a couple of these verses from verse 11 to about verse 18 in this way. She knows a bargain when she sees one and is always concerned about the future stability and the supply of her home. The strength of her character is shown in her attitude toward her household tasks. She takes pride in a job well done, even if she must work late hours to accomplish it. Well, that was Ruth. She was diligent, took the initiative, and was working in the fields in Boaz, and the supervisor noticed that. Secondly, she was virtuous in her reputation. Would you look with me back in Ruth? This time, skip ahead to chapter 3. Verse 10. Then he said, he being Boaz, Blessed are you, you being Ruth again, Blessed are you of the Lord, my daughter, for you have shown more kindness at the end than at the beginning, in that you did not go after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you request for all the people of my town know that you are a virtuous woman. Ruth was not a husband hunter. She didn't flaunt herself. She didn't uh, find the first young man and say, Hey, I need a husband. Come and be my husband. She wasn't loose. And that's the idea of what Boaz noticed. She was not a loose gal. And it says, Everybody in town knows you're a virtuous woman. The idea doesn't mean simply a noble woman, it has the idea of being chased. You don't chase after young men or old men looking for somebody who's rich. You're waiting for the right one. You're not loose sexually. You're chased and you're waiting for the right husband. There was a teenager talking to his grandpa. And the teenager said, Gee, grandpa, you guys in your generation didn't have socially transmitted and sexually transmitted diseases like we have in our generation. He said, Gramps, let me ask you a question. What did you use to have safe sex? Grandpa said, a wedding ring. <laughs> he abstained. He was chaste. And it was noticed as reputation would have it in that town that Ruth was a chaste woman waiting for the right one. Getting too close physically too soon will ruin any relationship. I think we know that. Because the closer you get, the less satisfied you are with that closeness. You want to go all the way. That's the way God built us sexually and emotionally. I have a book in my library called um, Handling Your Hormones. Great title, don't you think? By Jim Burns, who was a youth pastor. And he recalled this story. Janet was a lonely girl in my youth group. 
She started dating one of the popular guys at her school and in her words, fell madly and passionately in love with him. After they broke up, she slipped into my office one day sobbing and said, I feel mad. I feel cheap. I have high standards. And now I don't even like him. How could I have given so much of my body to someone I thought I liked, but now I can't even stand? I sure didn't count the cost. Byrne says, That's real insight for a 16-year-old. Unfortunately, Janet learned the hard way, and after the fact that her sexuality was personal, and that if she gave herself freely before marriage, she would regret it later on. The two things so far that Boaz noticed is that she was a diligent gal, she was chaste, she had a reputation for being such. Thirdly, she was gracious. Look back at verse 2. She's talking to mom-in-law right now, and she says, Please let me go to the field and glean. In verse 7, the supervisor said, the scal came and said, please let me work. Down in verse 10, when they are meeting, Boaz and Ruth, she fell on her face, bowed down to the ground and said, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? Do you hear the sweet ring of grace in her voice? Please. Is that significant? I think so. She's going to her mother-in-law to support her mother-in-law. And she says, Naomi, would you please give me permission to go sweat and work out in the fields for you? Would that be okay? Parents, what if your kids came to you and asked such a question? Uh, Let's put it in a relatable way. What if your son or daughter said, Can I please clean my room? Can I please pluck weeds from the garden? Would you please let me pick up after the dog in the backyard, please? You'd think... He's going to ask for money any time now. He wants a bigger allowance. All of this to say that the trials of Ruth's past had not broken her spirit. The hard journey from Bethlehem, the death of her husband, all that she is facing in this new land, those are enough to crush a human spirit. But she still has graciousness about her. Please. She bows down. She's very gracious. Things like what she has been through have crushed many a soul. Remember the woman at the well of Samaria that Jesus approached? That's a different story. There was a woman who had five husbands come and go. And listening to her in that conversation, you could tell she had been marred by bitterness. And it's all over her conversation in her voice. Mistrust has weathered her outlook. And she gives these cynical little remarks to Jesus Christ. The attitude of a woman can make her beautiful or can make her ugly. Beauty is a lot more than a pretty face and a nice dress. It has a lot to do with the attitude. Listen to what Peter wrote. He said, It is not fancy hair, gold jewelry, or fine clothes that should make you beautiful. No, your beauty should come from within you, the beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit that will never be destroyed and is very precious to God. Proverbs 31 also says, She opens her mouth with wisdom, and on her tongue is the law of kindness. So, so far, so good. She's hardworking, she's chaste, she's gracious. 
Fourthly, she's godly. Look in verse 12 what uh, her husband-to-be says about her. The Lord repay your work. A full reward be given to you by the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings you have come for refuge. He knew all about her at this point. He knew that she was a foreigner. He knew that she made a commitment to Naomi and said, Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Ruth, I know you've made that commitment. You have come to take refuge under the wings of the God of Israel. You are a godly woman. Again, Proverbs 31 says, Beauty is what? Vain. But a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. If there is one characteristic that in this culture, this country, we would say is the most important in a relationship, though many would not admit it, but it seems pretty obvious from looking around, ask a young man, what do you want in a young woman? Either at the top or close to the top will be how she looks. We are preoccupied and obsessed with outward beauty. I can prove it. Walk into any store and look at the magazine rack. You don't have to look far. Just glance and walk away. You and I aren't on the covers of those magazines. There's a certain kind of a person that is. I saw a television special not too long ago on the news. And as they were introducing this television news late night special, it said, America's obsession with looks and beauty, what people cannot live without. Now don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with physical beauty. There's nothing wrong with combing your hair. There's nothing wrong with putting on makeup or looking good. As somebody once said, any old barn looks better painted. So, hey, go for it. What is wrong is that it is all temporary, right? Unless you do lots of nipping and tucking and corrective surgery, you will lose the battle with your enemy, age. It will win ultimately. You will not look the same that you began to look in the relationship that you have. Every pretty body has that enemy. And she was a godly woman. And I'm sure she was a pretty woman as well. But what kept the relationship together on her side was her godliness. So look at her characteristics. Hardworking, chaste, gracious, godly. Great, great gal, huh, guys? I, I'm reminded of what Moffat, how he translated Proverbs 31, that last verse we just mentioned. He said, Charm may wane, beauty may wither, so keep your praise for a wife with brains. When you are looking for that wife, make sure that at the top of the list, godliness is preeminent. And wives, make sure that in your life, of all the traits you seek to exhibit, godliness is preeminent. Now let's look at Boaz. He was a man of value. Uh, as we look at his life, the first thing we notice about him in verse 1 is that he's wealthy. Now I'm not saying that this ought to be the number one characteristics. It should not be. But it's just something we notice about him, and so we'll discuss it. There was a relative of Naomi's husband, a man of great wealth, of the family of Elimelech. His name was Boaz. I think it goes without saying that uh, this wasn't dropped in his lap, that he too was a hard worker. It is evidenced by the way he treats his employees, by the personal attention he gives to the field in this chapter and in the next. 
that he also was a hard worker. And I think that God entrusts some people with greater resources than others. It is not wrong or ungodly to have money. Some of the godliest people in the Bible had a lot of it, a lot more than you and I will ever see. Job had a lot of it. He was tested, and after the test, he got more. Abraham had servants. He could muster a whole army to protect his flock from his own employ. Barnabas, Joseph, to just mention a few. So let's get rid of the idea that, well, God loves the poor, but God hates the rich. I have often heard misquoted 1 Timothy 6. I've heard people say, the Bible says money is the root of all evil. That's baloney. It says the love of money. And you can be poor and love it as much as if you're rich. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And some have been led astray by it and have fallen into perdition. In Deuteronomy 8.18, God says, You will remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you power to get wealth. There's a spiritual gift in the New Testament called the gift of giving. Barnabas had it. He was wealthy, but he became a channel to give what he had to others who didn't have. And I think that when God finds a trustworthy person who isn't interested in all that stuff, God will bless that person freely and financially because he knows that he can trust that person to not hoard the wealth, but to distribute it to those among the body of Christ who will have need. Yet, though God may give it, don't seek it. Don't seek it. God gives it to you, great. I mean, God gives you power and you're an entrepreneur and you can figure out ways. It's fine. There's nothing wrong with it. Use it for God's glory. And don't rest upon it. And women, don't look for a person who's just wealthy. Well, I want to find a husband. Rich. For it says in the Bible in 1 Timothy, we have brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. I've done a lot of funerals. I have never once seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul trailer. You can't take it with you. When you're dead, you're dead. But it happened that God blessed Boaz. He was very wealthy. Now let's get to his characteristics of personality. He was kind and sensitive. Verse 4. Behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered him, The Lord bless you. Does that sound like your job? I haven't seen too many work crews or construction crews talk like that to each other. I've heard a lot of other words. But imagine, here comes the supervisor. And he says, God bless you. And they go, hey, God bless you. What kind of a place is this? It's a place that has a godly influence because of a godly boss. He talks this way. He's not so preoccupied with what he has that he can't give attention, kindness, and sensitivity to even the poorest of the poor and his own workers. He's interested in them in a godly way. And we see Boaz, as soon as he comes on the scene and starts opening his mouth, there seems to be this largeness of character about him. Empathy, love, sensitivity, kindness, all woven together in one individual. Kind words exert great power. They melt hard hearts. A soft answer turns away wrath. Proverbs 15, 1 tells us. But harsh words stir up anger. Kindness can exert great power. 
Have you ever regretted saying something kind? Have you ever walked away from a situation thinking, I feel bad, I was just too nice to him. Why did I say he was, why did I say those things? I should have been meaner. But, on the other hand, have you walked away from a situation thinking, why did I say that stupid, cutting remark? You can't be too kind. Especially as a Christian. Especially as a Christian husband to a Christian wife. Dwight L. Moody said, A man may be a good doctor without loving his patients. A lawyer without loving his clients. A good geologist without loving science. But he cannot be a good Christian without love. And I would add to that, you can't be a good Christian husband without the deep, kind, sensitive love for the wife that God has given you. Well, Boaz was not only kind to his workers, but kind to Ruth and made her feel accepted. Look at verse 5. Boaz said to a servant, Whose young woman is this? And he told her. And then in verse 8 they meet. Boaz said to Ruth, You will listen, my daughter, will you not? Do not go glean in another field or go from here, but stay close by my young women. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap. Go after them. Have I not commanded the young men not to touch you? When you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink from what the young men have drawn. So she fell on her face, bowed to the ground, and said, Why have I found such favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? Boaz answered and said, It has been fully reported to me all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you have left your father and mother in the land of your birth and have come to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay your work and a full reward be given to you by the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings you have come for refuge. And she said, Let me find favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me and have spoken kindly to your maidservant, though I am not like one of your maidservants. Probably he was the first one that made her feel accepted in this foreign country, in this Jewish nation. He kind of put his arms around her in a figurative sense and said, I accept you. I will identify with you. You are important. You can hang out in my fields. If a relationship is to succeed, it must be laced with sensitivity and kindness. There's an old English proverb that says, it's easier to catch flies with honey than vinegar. It's easier to catch a wife with honey than with vinegar. Not that you catch a wife, but... The idea is you attract a person not by being caustic, but by sweetness. Galatians chapter 6, verse 10. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. And, and don't plan your kindness for another day. Well, I don't want to be too kind and too nice. They might take advantage of me, so I'll put on this hard exterior, macho front, and maybe I'll be kind later on. One person said, If there are any kind words to be spoken, let us speak them now, while our loved ones are yet with us. If there are loving deeds to be done, let us do them today. For flowers on the lid of a coffin and a nice epitaph on a tombstone bring no cheer to the dead. Now is the time to be kind. And wherever this man was, he was kind to workers, to women, and here to Ruth. Thirdly, he was protective. Did you notice that in verse 9? He says, Have I not commanded the young men not to touch you? I think he's getting a little romantic, personally, at this point. He's kind of 
moving in, you might say. <laughs> kind of like a guy standing up and goes, Ma'am, you don't have to worry about a thing. I'll protect you. Men like to do this, by the way. There's nothing wrong with it. It's that protective element in the relationship that can make a woman feel secure in his love. He knew that those young men could be rascals out in the field. And so he went and took the initiative to make a command, Don't touch her. I'm your boss. Don't touch that gal. Matthew Henry used to say that in the creation, when God took the rib from Adam and fashioned a woman, he said, you will notice that woman was not taken from man's head to be above him. Woman was not taken from man's feet to be walked on by him. Woman was taken from his side to be protected, to be loved, to stay close to his heart all the days of their lives. He was protected. Fourthly, he was godly. Now, it sounds very much like Ruth, doesn't it? But here's a guy who's a godly man. In verse 4, he uses the term Yahweh, the covenant name of Israel. The Lord bless you. Here's a guy who was not one person in church and one person on the job, who would speak worldly language on the job to fit in, and then all of a sudden come to church and go, Praise the Lord, God bless you. He was consistent. He was godly to the workers. He was godly to Ruth in the terms that he uses for her. Life was not compartmentalized for him. Ruth was godly. He was godly. All of that to say godly guys are attracted to godly gals and godly gals are attracted to godly guys. So make godliness the priority in your relationship. Fearing and honoring God. Gals, women, girls... That man who's going to be your husband one day needs to be a representative of Jesus Christ to you. That's right. He needs to be that prophet priest of the home. He's the representative of Jesus to you. That doesn't mean you should look for a guy necessarily with a robe, sandals, long hair, and a staff, but with godly, Christ-like characteristics. Boaz was a godly man. I want to kind of press that a little further. In relationships, it is important that there be a match. Now, I do think opposites attract, and there are personality quirks that, because they're different from us, we're drawn to that person. But when it comes to God, both should honor Him. That should be something in common. And so Paul in 2 Corinthians says, and I think it implies every relationship, including marriage, do not be unequally yoked together with an unbeliever. Or as the RSV puts it, don't be mismated. The idea is a farmer going out to plow a field will pick two oxen of the same size, same temperament. They're equally yoked. So when he puts the wooden yoke on their necks to pull the plow, they're not going to go in two opposite directions. They're going to go ahead. God knows that in a relationship, if there's not an equality in yoke in serving the Lord, you will have two people going in opposite directions, and the work of God will be hindered. You might say, well, there's just not enough Christian men around this place, and uh, I would say not Christian men necessarily, but any guy that I'd be interested in marrying. I've heard girls say that. Well, there's just no good men. There's no good men. Well, actually, you might have a point there. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, 
And so she'll say, well, I'm dating an unbeliever. Why? Well, maybe I'll lead him to Christ. You know, missionary dating. It's my mission field. Missionary dating can lead to missionary marriages. I've seen more Christians compromise their walk in dating and marriage than unbelievers turn when that setup occurs. And you might feel like a missionary, sort of living in a third world country spiritually for the rest of your life. Don't be unequally yoked together. So, we have a woman of virtue. We have a man of value. Finally, we'll just peek at her. We have a mother of valor. That's Naomi. Ruth comes home and says, This is what happened today, Mom. Let me tell you about it. And notice the response. Look at verse uh, 18, chapter 2. Then she took it up, went into the city, and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. So she brought out and gave to her what she had kept back after she had been satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where have you gleaned today? Where did you work? Blessed be the one who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, This man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, Blessed be he of the Lord who has not forsaken his kindness to the living and the dead. And Naomi said to her, This man is a relative of ours, a close relative. And Ruth the Moabitess said, He also said to me, You shall stay close to my young men until they have finished all my harvest. When Naomi hears about this, she blesses the relationship, so to speak. You know, she, she could have said a lot of things. She could have said, well, what's this guy like? I'm sure he's nothing like my son was to you. She's excited for this new relationship. She sees what's happening. Oh, this is great. We kind of met, and it's very romantic. And she gave her blessing on this relationship. We know from the scriptures that when God called a young couple, Adam and Eve, to be married, he said, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave it to his wife, Right? The two shall become one flesh. There's leaving of one relationship to cleave to another. Anytime we marry somebody here at church, we will ask them the question, what do your parents think of this guy, this gal, this relationship? get a lot of interesting answers. Some say, oh, they're really excited for us and they're behind us, but we're making the choices. Others will say, oh, listen, my parents are really excited. They're planning the whole wedding themselves. It's not good. Or she might say, well, my mom thinks he's a creep, basically. Those are not good responses. Now, they can be overcome, but parents, one of the best gifts you can give to your parents, to your children on their wedding day, is to release them. Cut the apron strings. Say, you are on your own. Trust the Lord and gel this relationship together. I'll still give you advice, love, all that stuff. But I think we need to even verbalize that to our children. You are leaving this relationship of dependence. You depend on the Lord and one another. And bless that relationship. Let them go. And it was a courageous step of valor, what Naomi did to Ruth. So those were the characteristics. Those are some of the things that they noticed about each other, some of the things we notice about them as we look through our text. Somebody once said that 
The key to a healthy marriage is to keep your eyes wide open before you wed and half closed after you wed. Good advice. Open your eyes if you're single. Look around at those characteristics of that person you're interested in. Are they godly? Are they kind? Are they sensitive? All of those things are important. Once you're married, close them a bit. Keep them open and look. Then overlook some of the mistakes after your marriage. Overlook some of those things. A rewarding relationship. Ruth and Boaz, who become husband and wife. You might say, yeah, that's the kind of a person I want. I want a husband like Boaz. You might say, yeah, I want a gal like Ruth. Well, that's great. Look for the right person, but moreover, be the right person. You might be married today thinking, yeah, I wish my husband next to me was like that guy. Why don't you just concentrate on being more Ruth-like? And men, concentrate on being more Boaz-like, godly, sensitive, kind. All of those things. Be the right person. It's amazing how when you concentrate on being the right person, how that other person who is the right person comes along or becomes that. The key factor, I think, is verse 12. It stands out to me more than any other verse. Ruth, you have taken refuge under the wings of God. That was the commitment you made. If you have a husband and a wife who have bound their lives together under the wings of God, you've got a great relationship. That's true love. True love isn't gazing into each other's eyes. True love is looking down the same road, going in the same direction together. So may God bless your relationships. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would solidify, strengthen, and edify every relationship that is represented here at the second service this morning. We pray, Father, that those who are single and are looking for a mate would concentrate on the right list, your list, looking for those who are godly, sensitive, kind, diligent. Father, I pray that those of us who are married would be the kind of people you want us to be. And Father, if there are relationships here this morning that are not under the covenant and covering of your wings, if there are husbands and wives who have not trusted in Jesus Christ, I pray, Lord, that today they would turn to him and take refuge under the shadow of your wings and may their relationship be guided and directed by yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.